This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise. I'm Lois Griffiths. For today's program, I will be interviewing Valerie Morse of Auckland Peace Action. And today's topic is a planned international maritime warfare exercise in the Pacific called Talisman Sabre. So welcome to Earthwise, Valerie Morse. Thank you very much. Well, Valerie, a year ago, actually, a year ago we interviewed you, introducing you as part of the Cancel RIMPAC Coalition, RIMPAC meaning Rim of the Pacific, and that was a large international military marine military exercise, and I know New Zealand peace activists hoped New Zealand would not take part. Did RIMPAC itself take place, and if so, did New Zealand take part? Um, indeed. In answer to your question, Lois, RIMPAC, the Rim of the Pacific exercises, did go ahead, and New Zealand did participate in those exercises. At the, um, I'm amazed at all of these exercises at a time of climate issues and pandemic, but... Um, <laughs> Now we're talking about talisman sabre. Is this the same thing? So this is a, a similar exercise to RIMPAC. This is primarily a land-based exercise that happens every two years. So it happens in the alternate year to RIMPAC. Um, talisman sabre is the largest bilateral, which means between two nations, um, between the Australian Defence Force and the United States military. But having said that, it includes a number of other countries along with it. So, um, yeah, there are seven, a total of seven nations that are that are participating. So it's it's not as quite as broad as RIMPAC, um, but it is a very, very large military exercise. And this includes New Zealand? Indeed, it does include New Zealand. Yeah, with a change of government, that is... Um New Zealand First is no longer part of a coalition. I thought there might have been change in the attitude of the government towards this sort of thing. Well, I guess what I would say, Lois, is I think you can read things a couple of different ways. First of all, New Zealand's participation in Talisman Sabre is a very minor contribution. So I received a response from um, the New Zealand Defence Force just two days ago, and people, your, your listeners can actually access that response exclusively on um, fyi.org.nz. FYI is a, is a website where people can lodge Official Information Act requests, and those responses become public. So if people are interested in actually seeing the response, you can see that on fyi.org.nz and just search for Talisman Sabre. So I ask them... I had asked them earlier in the year what New Zealand's contribution was going to be, um, and they gave me a response. And I went back to them and I said, well, now that the exercise has actually started, what is the actual contribution? And so New Zealand has only sent, as far as I know, 13 personnel. So that's 10 from the New Zealand Army and three from the New Zealand Air Force. So um, you could argue that New Zealand's response is significantly different than it was the last time that New Zealand participated in Talisman Sabre. So at that point, 
um, and that was in 20, 2019, um, New Zealand had, um, had sent uh, 600 troops from the Army, Navy, and Air Force. They sent 27 light armored vehicles, three NH-90 helicopters, and the HMNZS Canterbury, the um, Navy ship. So there is a, it is a significantly smaller contingent that has gone over um, this year for Talisman Sabre. So you could read that as a change of heart by the New Zealand government. You could also read it in a slightly different way, which is that there are other pressures being put on the military um, from COVID. So we know that uh, the Defence Force has been called upon to serve as essentially security personnel at the MIQ facilities, and they have said that the, that that responsibility has, you know, put some significant strains on their ability to do other deployments. So it's not clear to me whether there is a change of heart um, or whether there are just simply other, because of COVID, other more pressing matters at hand. So they sent just one ship, did you say? No, no, no. New Zealand has, that, in 2019, we sent one Navy vessel. We have sent no Navy vessels oh, this year. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah. I've been reading about um, reaction to this in Australia on the Green Left website. And their worries there have to do with environmental issues, particularly the Great Barrier Reef. Obviously, military training like is not simply soldiers running around practicing maneuvers. Like, what what's going on is the actual use of um, live munitions. So they've been trialing out things like Patriot missiles. Um, they use live ordnance all over the place. And yeah, that this is going on in in exercise talisman saber within the area of the great barrier reef national marine reserve so um there are you know this is a, an area that is already under severe pressure uh from climate change um we've got you know bleaching of the coral reefs um there's a lot of of um, significant fishing and dumping in that area already um so it's an area that is really cannot afford any more stress um, but this kind of this kind of naval exercise, this kind of military exercise, is extremely damaging to that very fragile environment. What is the real reason for talisman saber? I say that because of something I've just read. It says it's to show the strength of the Australia-U.S. alliance in the close and enduring nature. I'm quoting of the military-to-military relationship of Australia with the U.S. Well, I think we have to understand that military training is largely about showing off, right? So um, nations do military training, and they talk about they're doing military training, and they show all they, they show all these great photos and 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 um, shoot all these videos and promote these exercises because they want to show the rest of the world what their military capabilities are. So they're kind of like a great big military parade. Um, and of course, in respect of the United States and Australia, that is squarely directed at China. Those, those military maneuvers are about showing the Chinese a united front between the United States and Australia and about the combined capability of those forces. So there is absolutely no mistaking the purpose of military training, um, certainly on one level, is a technical, um, technical exercise to improve the, the ability of those forces to act together 
in, in a war situation, but more importantly is a propaganda exercise to the rest of the world to say this is, this is how big our guns are um, and this is how we're prepared to use them. Yes, we're hearing a lot about um, China these days in our media. I, I hope there's going to be no war with China. Interestingly enough, I guess as part of the change of, of government in the United States, one would have thought that there might be a, I guess, a, a softening on the kind of rhetoric that the United States has been engaged in throughout the Trump presidency. But in point of fact, that really isn't the case. So um, we know within um, the last couple of weeks that the United States has deployed a squadron of very late, um, the latest model F-22 fighter jets to Guahan or the island of Guam, which is really a heavily militarized um, island in the Pacific that is a U.S. military base um, and is essentially the launching point for any kind of forward attack on China. So that island is really the, the sort of outward post and I guess a real sign of what the U.S.'s position is about China. And there has been certainly no softening um, in terms of that, that relationship and, that, and the U.S. posture um, in terms of China. It, it, is, it is quite worrying because at the same time, of course, you know, the Chinese continue to increase their military spending. So, you know, military, militarism is, is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So one side says, here's our guns, here's what we can do. And the other side says, oh, well, you've got that. Well, we clearly need something, you know, something to counter that. So that's the kind of military buildup that just keeps spiraling upward um, here in the Pacific at the moment. Yes, I've been amazed to read that the uh, military budget under Biden is greater than it was under Trump. Yeah, well, that probably that is is a little surprise because, you know, in Washington there has been a very long-standing consensus about military spending. So there is really no no slackening of the you know the support for the the U.S. war machine. It's just where and how that war machine ex- essentially is deployed. You're listening to Earthwise, broadcasting on Plains FM in Christchurch, on Free FM in Hamilton, and on Coast Access in Waikanae. Today's guest is Valerie Morse of Auckland Peace Action. Valerie, we see that powerful interests want big military exercises, even here in the Pacific. But what about people at the grassroots, flax roots level? I know you took part in a web webinar recently. Um, Well, I guess what I would say is that war is not really for the benefit of people on the ground. Like, you know, I think we know that we've got friends um, and allies across the Pacific working and trying to live and survive day to day, just like, you know, just like everybody else. You know, people people in China, uh, people in Korea, people in Japan people across the Pacific in places like Fiji and Tonga, you know, we're all just trying to get by. For ordinary people, war is, war is, is disaster. War is horror. Um, war does not serve the interests of, of ordinary people. War serves those who make weapons and, and um, who make profit from waging war. So things companies like weapons manufacturers, for example, um, the military hierarchy and those at the top end of society are the ones who, 
who really benefit from the kind of continued status quo. So, you know, throughout the Pacific, there are organizations and people that are united in their opposition to war for a variety of reasons. For some people, that opposition is um, is from a perspective of peace. For some people, it's about the environmental damage and climate damage. Um, you know, it's an often repeated fact that the U.S. military is the um, world's largest single user of fossil fuels. Um, you know, the war machine, as we sort of call it, is is a huge consumer of our natural resources. And those resources, on one hand, are, are things we can no longer waste um, because we've got a, a, you know, a planet on the, the verge of, of collapse, really. The systems of life are on the verge of, of being unable to function because we have extracted and taken and wasted so much. But also that, you know, the amount of human resources that we put into militarism, into the military war machine, are enormous. And they're resources that we could put into a lot of other things. Here in New Zealand and many other places, we could put that into buildings, you know, building things like houses, schools and hospitals. You know, we could put that into um, the development of, of better and, you know, more advanced technology for essentially you know, healing society. We've got, you know, a mental health crisis and a, and a health crisis in this country. So there's so many different ways that we could use the great human power and the great natural resources that currently go into the military. Well, Valerie, I just visited your website, aucklandpeaceaction.wordpress.com, and I recommend it to other people. I found something fascinating called Pacific People's Declaration for Peace. It's brilliant. Who's been involved with creating this declaration? So, um, yeah, and I, I'll just, just for a point of clarity, I have been a member of Auckland Peace Action, and, um, but I'm back actually in Wellington, so I've been part of Peace Action Wellington much oh, more okay. recently. <laughs> no, no, that's all good. Um, I'm, I have been part, of, and that's essentially our kind of sister organization. So the... Um, the Pacific Peace Declaration was uh, was actually sort of formulated by an organization in Australia called the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. And that network of, of um, organizers in Australia have been particularly at the forefront of kind of bringing together a Pacific Peace Network. Um, and that includes people, you know, from from all around the Pacific, including the United States, um, Australia, Korea, um, Japan, you know, places all across the Pacific, really to pull out some of the stories about the effects of militarism and some of the local campaigns. Because I think on one hand, it's really easy for all of us to get kind of, I guess, overwhelmed by the sort of enormity of, of war and militarism. But for many of these places in the Pacific, it's not a kind of an abstract idea about some war happening somewhere else. It's a daily lived reality of uh, military bases. So for people, you know, many people and your listeners will be familiar with the American bases in places like Japan, um, places like Okinawa, um, as I mentioned in Guam. You know, these are these are very um, these are communities that are essentially overwhelmed with the presence of U.S. military there. So the, the Pacific Peace Declaration was really uh, an attempt to kind of bring some of those voices together, a unified rejection of this idea of military training and these kinds of exercises. 
Well, it's a brilliant declaration. It could, could make a program in itself. But one of the things it calls for, for instance, halt to all military exercises in land, sea, and air in the Pacific. And it mentions it threatens our, our, our physical environment, what we survive on. Mm. And a closure of all foreign military bases. Again, thinking of um, some here, I think that it would include spy bases, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And cleaning up toxic military sites. That's another point that we've referred to is some, the contamination of sites where military has taken place. It's yes, a, absolutely, absolutely. And we see that, I mean, we've got this situation, for example, in the Marshall Islands where the United mm. States has... Um, dumped a whole lot of nuclear waste and sealed it in a concrete dome. And that concrete dome is now starting to leak. This is highly radioactive waste um, with millions and millions and millions of gallons of um, radioactive material that is literally a ticking time bomb that's going to you know, leak into the Pacific Ocean. So, I mean, while many of us are focused on I think issues of pollution closer to home. We've got real issues uh, with things like um, things like this this concrete dome in the in the Marshall Islands. Oh, I find the Marshall Islands very disturbing. I mean, the U.S. dropped tested what hydrogen weapons there? The, mm, yeah, on a country they're not at war with, and just <laughs> it's a very disturbing story. The Marshall Islands. Indeed, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the sickness and the, the effects on the, on the people on the ground continue to this day. So just a couple of weeks ago in Tahiti, there was massive demonstrations on the streets um, calling for a French acknowledgement of the ongoing effects of French nuclear weapons testing. Mm. You know, so this, this is not an issue from the 1950s and 60s. Um, this is not something that went away when New Zealand became nuclear free. The legacy and the reality of nuclear weapons and nuclear testing in the Pacific is ongoing. Yes, yeah. I've heard of that demonstrations in Tahiti. We live in an age where we need to concentrate on, well, all the issues are connected, aren't they? Sometimes climate people won't talk on the issues of militarism. It's so intertwined. Absolutely. I mean, I guess what I would say, like, just a couple of points specifically about New Zealand's participation in in exercise talisman saber. I think, you know, it's important for people to understand that New Zealand has benefited um, from from Australia's very hardline military positions without being seen to take those positions. So it has kind of been able to have its cake and eat it too. So New Zealand has appeared to be this kind of international humanitarian leader on the world stage, an advocate for a kind, a kind, a kind approach, as the prime minister sort of likes to talk about it. But in reality, in in respect of um, asylum seekers, for example, New Zealand has not been particularly kind and has taken advantage of the kind of offshore uh, naval patrolling um, of vessels that are attempting to, you know, bring people seeking asylum. Um, into Australia or into New Zealand. So there's a family, for example, that's trapped now in, in uh, Malaysia that had tried to reach New Zealand from Singapore, or excuse me, from Sri Lanka. Um, they were turned back by the Australian Navy. They were actually trying to reach New Zealand. And New Ze those people are now sitting in a refugee camp 
Um, and there's a campaign actually to get them to, to the New Zealand government to allow them to come to New Zealand. This is where they were headed. But New Zealand gets to say, gets to sort of point their finger at Australia about their, their sort of horrific gulags in places like Manus and Nauru. Um, but actually New Zealand itself and the New Zealand government has benefited from that kind of position of Australia. So, you know, New Zealand in some ways doesn't get to wear as the sort of moral high ground when it comes to uh, the military position. So, you know, we like to imagine that actually we're so much better um, than the Australians, but really that's not so much the case. And I think the other thing to, to understand is that New Zealand is participating in Talisman Sabre because it wants to be seen by the United States and by Australia as a credible uh, partner in war. And we have to remember, we've just come off 20 years of war in Afghanistan. You know, we, we were there alongside the U.S. and the Australians for 20 years um, in a completely pointless and horrific war. And New Zealand wants to continue to say, hey, don't worry, we'll be there if you need us. Um, but meanwhile, they don't want to alert the Chinese they, that they're continuing to, to do these military exercises. So they're trying to walk a very, very fine line. I'm afraid, um, I'm afraid I've got to interrupt. We're almost out of time. And um, Valerie, just you mentioned you're now in Wellington. So you've got a group going in Wellington. And I hope we have one going in Christchurch as well. Can't leave it all to the North Island. No, well, I, I think there does need to be a peace. I mean, Christchurch is a great peace city and has a tremendous peace history. It would be fantastic if there was a, a an explicitly peace-oriented right. group there. Yes. Okay, well, thanks for talking to us, Valerie, and if these issues are not going to go away. Thanks so much, Lois. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Great talking to Valerie again. and I introduced her as part of Auckland Peace Section. She's now based in Wellington. I just want to comment on something I've read written by Naomi Klein in The Intercept. She explains that in rich countries, there's always been an awareness of climate breakdown, but it was always assumed that it was the poor, unimportant countries that would bear the brunt. But now, what's happened very recently unprecedented high temperatures, huge runaway fires in the U.S. Northwest, severe flooding in Germany and in China. So just recently, Naomi Klein said, just recently climate has become the main concern in the world's wealthy countries too. And she adds, if our climate collapses, so does everything else, and that should be the beginning of all discussions on the topic. So from us at Earthwise, goodbye. Goodbye.